Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. A friend of mine's daughter had the good fortune to grow up in a church where all the women were pastors and all the pastors were women. I said that wrong. Where all the pastors were women, not the reverse. Get the point. Senior pastor, female. Discipleship pastors, female. Musician pastors, female. And one day there was a guest preacher who was a man. My friend's daughter turned to her and said, wait a minute, can men be preachers? As we heard in the passage this morning, women in the New Testament church can do a lot more than that. They can be business leaders, ambassadors across the seas. They can save Paul's own life, sticking out their neck for the apostle. They can be heads of churches that meet in their homes. And they can be apostles, like the 12 disciples themselves. There have been times and places in church history, including the churches most Christians belong to today, that don't open pastoral leadership to women's gifts. But you'll find in even those churches, women run everything else. In the Biasy household, none of us boys would get anywhere on time or fed or ready for the day without Jalen's work. We boys try to do better. So one day I did an extra portion, did all the grocery shopping, cooked all the food, cleaned up everything after, and one of our kids turned to his mom and said, wow, mom, you must be exhausted. I'll never catch up. Here's why Christianity is good news for women. Because it's good news for people. Christ's resurrection raises all humanity. And not a one of us yet has managed to get born without a mom. If you have a belly button, so does God in Jesus Christ. And he came for you. Paul says in Galatians 3.28 that baptism drowns all distinctions between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. Any hierarchy that exists is turned upside down in Christ's church. Christianity is a family where water is thicker than blood. Now, as soon as we say all that, all the old divisions come creeping back in. Enslavers have been Christian, as you heard in the sermon last week. So have sexists and racists and every other kind of ist there is. Christ still has work to do on all of us even after baptism and faith, it seems. Never be surprised that there are terrible sinners in the church. I mean, where else do you want them? Actually, where else do you want us? Christ has work to do on all of us. We live in a strange cultural moment with regard to gender. Pronouns are fluid, roles are up for grabs, and there's been backlash over all of this. Let the backlash not come from the church, please. Because in the church, gender has always been fluid. Male Christians have to become part of a female bride of Christ. That's what baptism means for us. I think that's why they put male pastors in dresses like uh, this, to make me stand up here and show that. 
Female Christians have to think of themselves as part of a male body of Christ. Jesus says in the kingdom, there will be no marriage. We will be like the angels. And angels have no gender. They don't procreate the way humans do. And in the history of the church, some of us have taken this on early. So monks and nuns already lose some of their distinctions of gender. Neither marries or has children. Male monks, no matter how wealthy or well-mannered their background, have to grow their own garden, do their own wash. Those things are considered women's work in many parts of the world. We'll get to it. In Christ, there's no male or female. And nuns have always been people who are free to order bishops and even popes and kings around. People look around and say, who's this woman's husband? Somebody get a hold of her. And someone else says, her only husband is Jesus. And he seems to be egging her on. So we can't help you. Gender has always been strange in the church. And I guess the rest of the culture is realizing the ramification of that. My kid came home this week with his fingernails painted. And I felt something in me object. And I had to stop and say, wait a minute. In Christ, no male and no female. Those look nice. And he said, thanks, they match my glasses. In baptism, our old self is drowned, and Christ is resurrecting a new self, and that's disorienting for all of us. But those who've been mistreated are first in this new Adam. Our passage for today is one of those many of us just fly past or skip altogether, like all the begat passages, our eyes glaze over. Most of us Westerners have to strain to remember the names of our great-grandparents. But most indigenous peoples identify who they are, not by their work, but by their family tree, going back quite a ways. It's a modern thing to not know your great-grandparents' names or where they're buried or to even care. It means someone moved for work, probably from a village to a city, maybe in another country. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But Scripture remembers like Aboriginal people, giving us Jesus' genealogy all the way back, wait for it, to Adam. It identifies us by all of those forebears. That's also a very Jewish thing. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, when asked what he tells young Jewish kids who are tempted to marry outside the faith, he says, I don't say anything. I just show them their family tree all the way back to Abraham and Sarah, the hundreds of generations that made them possible. And that's a matriarchal line, by the way. What it means to be Jewish is that you have a Jewish mom. And we have some great women in our family, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, and Miriam, and Deborah the judge, and Yael the warrior, and Hannah the prayer, and Naomi and Ruth the tenacious friends, and the first prophet ever in Israel, Huldah, countless more. So it's no surprise Paul has women in his life and his ministry. That's a very Jewish thing to do, and he brings lots of them up in this chapter. Romans 16, that Bob just read, is like the envelope of a letter. It has Paul identifying all the folks he knows well. He says, you don't know me, church at Rome, but you know these sisters 
that I have worked with. And he's naming not just anybody, he's naming co-workers in the gospel, those who've worked hard for the kingdom. They've saved his skin more than once. They've provided for his ministry. Without these powerful women, we would have no Paul, no New Testament church, and none of these letters. So here's an image of St. Phoebe, a deacon in the church in Chincre. We don't know what ordination was like in the New Testament church or even whether it existed, but a deacon does seem to have been in office, a position of something like official leadership. Paul calls Phoebe a benefactor. That means someone who gives from their private wealth for the benefit of the public. It's a term used for the emperor in Rome because the emperor has the most wealth and also gives the most for the public benefit. Benefactor is more like a mafia dona than it is like a church mouse. Deacon's primary responsibility is to care for the poor out of their own largesse. So just imagine Phoebe running our food bank with her own personal money in addition to her organizational and business skills. Scholars figure that Phoebe took the letter to Rome on a business trip she was already going on, and she would have then been the one to read it to the church gathered in Rome. So just think, the first time any human being heard these words, Paul's greatest letter, it was in a woman's voice. And what it meant to read a letter in the ancient world was you stopped and explained stuff. And with Paul, there's a lot that's confusing to stop and explain. She preached, and others sat under her authority. Then Paul greets Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet the church in their house. This couple shows up elsewhere in the Bible, In Acts chapter 18, we also see Priscilla and Aquila. Read it for homework. During the commercials of the football games, the commercials last too long anyway. And every time they show up, Priscilla, the woman, is mentioned first. It's her house. He married in. These two are leaders of a church that meets in their house. So she's more like a bishop than a pastor or priest. Not only that, Paul says they risked their necks for his life. We don't know what he was referring to, but it sure sounds like we would have no Paul without Priscilla and her husband, what's his name? In the rest of the chapter, there are five house churches mentioned, including the one in Prisca's house. See, churches in the ancient world, the New Testament world, weren't buildings. They were people, and they gathered in living rooms. When we think of a church, we think of a building with an address. But instead, this is the church that met in Priscilla's house. A group of people, probably sitting in a circle, with someone else's baby on one knee and a plate of food awkwardly balanced on the next. Rome was the greatest city in the ancient world. It had some 500,000 people, scholars guess. That's not huge for us. It's about the size of Kitchener or London, Ontario. So to count up all of Paul's acquaintances, he mentions in these five house churches, there might have been 120 Christians in all of Rome. Some of you have already done the math. That means 0.0002% of Rome is Christian. 
And Paul shows no anxiety about the church being small at all. You don't need many people to witness creatively to the truth of the resurrection. To listen to Jesus, you only need two or three. To listen to Paul, maybe 120. Jesus is Lord, and we're in on that secret, but one day, everyone will know. And then Paul's most interesting greeting, and a chapter of really interesting greetings. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Israelites who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles. Junia, that's a woman's name. Here's how she's depicted the way lots of ancient Christians are depicted, standing, hands up, in prayer. Have you ever tried praying like that? Even if no one else is around, you feel very vulnerable. There's a reason we started praying like this, like we were bracing for a car crash. But try praying like this, your arms get tired fast. But you're open to the Holy Spirit, and you're making a gesture that looks like Jesus' own cross. Some ancient manuscripts change Junia's name to Junius, which would be a man's name. But there were lots of women named Junia in the ancient Mediterranean, and no men named Junius. This is a sister. Why does this matter? Because Paul calls her prominent among the apostles. She is an apostle herself, like the twelve, like Paul. What's that mean? To be an apostle in the New Testament means you met the resurrected Jesus face to face. You spoke with him. You touched his wounds. And then you went out and told other people about it. And Junia is in those ranks. When that generation of apostles died off, they were replaced pretty quickly by bishops, almost all, it seems, male. But not before Junia made the list. But this isn't that surprising. Because the very first apostle is Mary Magdalene, the very first preacher of a Christian sermon, the very first person who met the risen Lord. And so in the Orthodox Church, the Magdalene is called the apostle to the apostles, the ones sent to the ones who would be sent. When women ask for ordination, they're not innovating. They're asking to join the ranks of Mary Magdalene, Phoebe, Junia, Prisca, and countless more whose names we don't know. Now, why am I going on about this? I'm not trying to suggest the New Testament church was some sort of feminist paradise. By the latter New Testament writings, it seems official leadership is closed down only to be offered to males. It wouldn't be till the 20th century that God's gifts to women could be exercised in ordination and leadership that way again. By that time, the 20th century, women were running whole countries and business empires and charities and hospitals and universities. It seemed ridiculous for women not to run churches. But we did lose something when we opened that office ordination to women. No good deed goes unpunished. Before the 20th century, the church knew about Phoebe, but they didn't call her a deacon. They called her a deaconess. And so most denominations had a role for women, an official role, of being a deaconess. Lots of Protestant denominations had legions of deaconesses running Sunday schools. And 
running hospitals and children's ministry. Deaconesses invented social work. It wouldn't exist without deaconesses. Next time you go to a therapist, thank God for deaconesses. Lots of those early social work schools became universities run by these deaconesses. They went around doing good with all their energy. They were basically Protestant nuns, except they could be married. So it was right to ordain women starting in the mid-20th century, earlier for Pentecostals. But when that office opened to women, deaconesses vanished. The daughters and granddaughters of deaconesses became ordained pastors. I never met a deaconess in my denomination, but I heard the legends. My mentor, Will Willimon, was told by a particularly stern deaconess, young man, you're gifted. You might have what it takes to be a minister one day. Willimon's written 90 books, been a bishop, and is teaching full-time in his 80s. He might have what it takes. God, give us stern, demanding women always. Now, we have days when we expect women to be honored in church. The most obvious is Mother's Day. I'm a little skeptical. Mother's Day was started by a Methodist laywoman in West Virginia, and by the end of her life, she tried to take it back. (laughs) She wrote a letter to the President of the United States. I founded Mother's Day, and I want it canceled. He ignored the letter. It had become a kind of consumerist extravaganza. She didn't want that, but that's what was born. And anyway, the florist industry had a great way to unload unneeded carnations that time of year. The reason Mother's Day doesn't work is that not all women are mothers. And one strange thing we Christians have always said is no one has to have children. No one has to, to be a full person. In fact, the holiest among us have often not had children biologically. All of us in baptism are married to Christ alone. And we have lots of children, spiritually speaking, those we teach faith to, and encourage, and cheer up, and send out into the world as their best selves. Among our three powerful women in the passage today, one is a benefactor, Phoebe, with no husband mentioned. Another is a house church leader, whose husband is always mentioned second. The third, Junia, no husband mentioned, no children mentioned. Are you getting the point? In the Christian church, as a woman, you don't have to have a husband. You don't have to have children. What femininity is there for is to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. Just like everything else in creation is there to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. Some reflect this as single women. And this is a radical thing because it says we don't have to have children to raise up a new generation in church. Because Jesus Christ will raise up a new generation by conversion, even if none of us has children. Some of us have children, either biologically or by adoption, and then you have a little church in your household. While trying not to murder them, you're also trying to raise them as disciples. This is the hardest thing to do. And so I wonder about you. Who's the powerful woman in your life without whom you're not you? without whom you don't have any faith at all, who believed in you when you did not. Lots of us immediately think of mothers, grandmothers, aunts, chosen family. 
Paul doesn't mention biology so much. The women he mentions are hard workers for the kingdom who bear faith to others. So we should give thanks for the women without whom we wouldn't believe in Jesus. For example, women teachers. Do we ever stop underestimating the importance of a teacher in a pupil's life? So a personal story, from grade two to grade six, every single teacher I had was an African-American woman. And so the toughest, tenderest, smartest, toughest, kindest, toughest, and did I mention toughest, woman in my life that I spent more time with than my own mother was a black woman. Thank God for that. An ethicist friend of mine was asked to write an encyclopedia article on gender. That's how academic institutions think. You, you're a gendered person, write about gender. So she wrote it on men, (laughs) flipping the script. It was around the time when the Lord of the Rings movies came out about every 10 minutes, and my sons love those movies. They can quote them in Elvish. But my friend writing this article said, so what's with all these men with these long swords? And what's with these dreams of killing hordes of grotesque, dark enemies? And what's with these ethereal, angelic women, or else women who are just as soldiery as the boys? Now, in a way, Game of Thrones is the naughty repost to Lord of the Rings. George R.R. Martin says to Tolkien, I can make my women crueler than my men, and more cruelly sexualized. Friends, this is not progress. <laughs> we live in a cultural moment where whole media empires are built on disdaining women doing professional work. You can become rich and famous by spewing venom on all of that. They say that men should be back in charge and women's only role is to serve them. I hope you're hearing the point today. That is antichrist nonsense. What my scholar friend was saying was simply this, maybe let women speak for themselves and listen for a change. They don't need me or anybody else to define femininity for them. They're doing that just fine, thank you very much. But men, it seems we have work to do on what masculinity is. The male we follow is an unmarried, irregularly ordained rabbi who seems to have had no proper job and no house. He wasn't exactly killing it on all the measures we give for men's success. To listen to Paul this morning, a real man goes around giving thanks until he's hoarse, especially to women without whom he would have no life at all. Women who gather the church in their houses and are great among the apostles. Here's the point. The Bible is not on the side of the reactionaries. The Bible is on the side of women apostles, fierce prophetesses, magnanimous donnas, the women without whom we wouldn't have life or life in the church. I was speaking to one of our leaders here at church and encouraging her to speak out about her faith and to pray in gatherings. She was a little unsure, and she said, you know, I don't think my prayers are really fancy enough. When I pray, all I really do is thank God for things. And I said, yeah, That's all prayer is, actually. Could you do that at the microphone for us and teach the rest of us? Another of you 
was telling me a story about a friend whose wrist was injured. The friend had been to the doctor with no luck, and you found yourself laying hands on her wrist, apologizing, saying, I'm not one of those weird Christians, but I can't help it. Let me try this, and praying for healing. And I asked, what happened? And you said, well, nothing miraculous, but the next time I saw her, she said it felt better. I just think there's something so holy about healing touch, so feminine about that, so beautiful. And maybe that is actually a miracle. Thanksgiving. I grew up celebrating this holiday on another weekend in the U.S. with football. Shorter growing season here in Canada, earlier harvest festival, plus three downs in Canadian football. Still getting used to this. We have powerful people in this church. I think we can appeal to the powers that be to add a fourth down. Anyone with me? You don't seem too excited about that. We didn't invent Thanksgiving as North Americans. Every culture in the world, I would wager, has a harvest festival. In fact, anywhere they put a seed in the ground and wait for it and then eat what comes up, I'm betting there's a way to give thanks for something they couldn't have grown but only someone greater than them could have. Seeds go deep in the ground after it's plowed, they gestate, and up comes amazing life, without which we don't have life. So indigenous Christian friends, when they call the earth our mother, they say, this isn't just true in Métis culture or Cree culture or Anishinaabe culture. This is true in Christian culture. In human culture, the earth is our mother, without which no life whatsoever. And any day that family and friends and strangers and the relatives you don't like are gathered around a table with Christ as head, that's a day when Jesus rejoices. Hug the women in your life extra tight today. There was a teenager at 9.15 who each time I mentioned moms, put his arm around his mom. My wife, Jaylen, reads everything I write, bless her. She changed more in this sermon than most. She's a woman apostle. She was like, out of the way, I got opinions on this stuff. So she pointed out, I don't do here what I normally do in sermons. Usually I dig deeper into the text, uncover its depths, show how it's counterintuitive. That's because there's so much about these women we don't know. I'd be guessing if we did that today. One day we will know them face to face and learn all about them. So I'll close with a quote from George Eliot, 19th century British author who wrote under a man's name to be taken seriously. Her wisdom hangs heavy on the vine in Middlemarch. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. Things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been. And that's half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Tombs like Phoebe's, Priscilla's, Junia's, and countless women and men whose names we don't know. Tombs already liberated by Christ, awaiting resurrection. Amen. As we turn to our time of prayer, we'll pray with some silence. This is actually why we come to church, is to pray 
For a thousand years in the West, sermons were optional, prayers were not. The faithful gathered to say our prayers together in a holy place. So in Calvin's Geneva, there was a case of old women getting in trouble for talking during the sermon. Why? They were praying their rosary beads, just like their mothers and grandmothers had done. And just because some man up there was talking who they couldn't hear, they weren't going to stop doing that. So let's concentrate our prayers together now. We want to pray for peace in Jerusalem and for all the lands of the Bible in the wake of a deadly surprise attack. This violence could be long-lasting, and a group from our church was due to leave in just days. We want to pray for peace with justice in Ukraine, and we want to pray for the protection of the vulnerable in Armenia and elsewhere. So I'll pray with prayers from a 6th century saint named Columba, an ancient Irish hymn from Albert Schweitzer, praying about St. Francis Day and animals this week, and also from David Adam, a 20th century writer. Let us pray. Praise and gratitude to you, holy God, who created the skies and the heaven first, and after that created the big wet sea and the heaps of fish in it swimming closely. Hear our humble prayer, O God, for our friends, the animals, especially for animals who are suffering, for any that are hunted or lost or deserted or frightened or hungry, for all that must be put to death. We entreat for them thy mercy and pity, and for those who deal with them, we ask a heart of compassion, gentle hands and kindly words. Make us ourselves to be true friends to animals and so to share the blessing of the merciful. Come, Lord, come down, come in, come among us. Come as the wind and move us. Come as the light to prove us. Come as the night to rest us. Come as the storm to test us. Come as the sun to warm us. Come as the stillness to calm us. Come, Lord, come down, come in, come among us. Have mercy on our troubled world and bring your peace with righteousness, especially in the Holy Land. Bless your people Israel in the Middle East, in Canada, and wherever the sons and daughters of Sarah and Abraham live. And bless the whole world through Israel and through us, your church. Thank you for the powerful women in our lives who give us life in the first place and new life in Christ. Bless our city with peace, with restored neighborliness, wisdom among our leadership, provision for our most needy, generosity among our most wealthy, and protection for the vulnerable. Bless each of our lives with an avalanche of your goodness and grace, especially in the areas we worry about the most. To God the Father who created the world, to God the Son who redeems the world, to God the Holy Spirit 
who lights us with holy fire. Be all praise and glory, now and forever. And with a confidence we could never have if Jesus had not commanded us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now as we offer our gifts to God, we remember St. Phoebe, the powerful deaconess and benefactor who gave to the church and the world from her largesse. That was a sign that she had given to Jesus her entire life. <laughs> 